1: On the rundown this morning, you're going to hear from Shannon DeConda, who will report on Anthem's rescinding its position on Modifier 25. It's our lead story this morning. Angela Phillips will report on Medicare guidelines for interrupted stays in inpatient rehabilitation facilities and who pays for those services. Whistleblower attorney Mary Inman will report on the latest whistleblower cases. She's going to be reporting live from London. And health care attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds
0: is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. So first, I want to give you some
2: promised follow-up. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the new national coverage determinations for defibrillators. At that time, it was unclear about the effective date. Well, it is now clear. It was effective immediately. That NCD also added the requirement for a formal shared decision-making encounter using an evidence-based tool. At that time, I questioned how we were to document this encounter, since many of these tools are online. And the answer from CMS is that they don't know, since the claims processing instructions have not yet been written. So for now, we're left in limbo. If you use a paper tool, get a copy. If you do it electronically, note the tool was used in the medical record, and hope for the best. Next, many of you may have seen an article published Friday by USA Today and Kaiser Health News entitled, As Surgery Centers Boom, Patients Are Paying With Their Lives. In this article, they present data on the number of patients who have died in ambulatory surgery centers because either the equipment or personnel needed to care for a complication were not available or they were sent home prematurely. This article is especially important now since CMS will soon be considering allowing a wide range of services in surgery centers, including joint replacements, electrophysiology procedures such as ablations and defibrillator implants, and cardiac procedures, including cardiac caths and stents. And if you remember my article last year, Humana has already stated that they think the Medicare inpatient only list does not apply to them and they're allowing their Medicare Advantage beneficiaries to have inpatient-only surgery at surgery centers, including joint replacements, hip fracture repair, carotid artery stents, ablations, cervical spine fusions, and many more. I'm hoping this Kaiser article gets CMS's attention and they reconsider their plans and stop Humana from endangering the lives of our seniors. Now, last week, CMS did hold their open-door forum, and as expected, many questions were about total knee replacement. And as expected, there were very few answers. I especially want to acknowledge a Monitor Monday listener from TriHealth in Cincinnati, Linda Hogel, who called in and really brilliantly explained the difficulties we're all facing with this issue. I continue to support my position that even if your patients go home in one midnight, they can be admitted as inpatients as long as documentation supports that they are at higher risk. Each one must be assessed on a case-by-case basis. I also think CMS is gonna work harder with the QIOs to be sure they understand that one-day stays are allowed if documentation supports it but my opinion is far from universally accepted. So the best I can say is that each facility must do what they think is right. Now, finally, after today's broadcast, I want every one of you to go to rackmonitor.com and scroll down a bit to find the link to the article entitled Hospice or Palliative Care, Two Weeks to Live with COPD. Chuck recently lost a good friend and in this article, he relates how Dr. Salvatore helped him understand his friend's
1: death. It's really quite touching. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch, very much. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now let's check in with J. Paul Spencer, who has an update on the latest Medicaid audits. Good morning, Paul. What's up?
3: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. One of the uh, foundations of providing medical care is that you are qualified to provide medical care And that uh, if you are not uh, qualified to provide care at a certain level, at the very least, you have the requisite uh, supervision of a physician or other provider in order to provide that care. What I'm going to bring forward today are two stories from New England uh, that focus on the problems of not having either enough supervision or enough uh, licensed uh, people at your facilities in order to treat. Uh, We tend to forget with regard to Medicaid, that uh, a great deal of the dollars that are paid out of Medicaid uh, plans nationwide are paid out to mental health. And a large mental health center in Massachusetts learned that the hard way over the last few weeks when they agreed to pay $4 million back to the state's Medicaid program, also known as MassHealth, uh, for mental health care services That were provided to patients by unlicensed unqualified or unsupervised staff members at clinics across the state having a uh, a spouse who is a licensed uh, professional counselor uh, I know all about the ins and outs of supervision and uh, how often she needs to staff with her uh, psychiatrist on staff in one particular case Uh, This particular mental health center focused on 17 mental health facilities across the state. In one of those cases, they had a clinic where 125 employees were providing some type of counseling uh, or therapy or other types of mental health services, and for those 125 employees, they only had two licensed supervisors advisors who could not have possibly provided the necessary supervision to all of the other unlicensed clinicians. Uh, so uh, it, uh, and uh, unfortunately, this came about as part of a whistleblower case. So of the total, the $4 million, 700000 will be going to the relator in the whistleblower case and the remainder will be going to uh, MassHealth. Uh, to pay back those dollars that were paid in error. Uh, the other story that we have goes, uh, comes from Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, where a Portsmouth man uh, had, uh, falsified his certification for first aid in providing home health care services. Uh, this gentleman was provided. He basically misrepresented his credentials and was paid uh, at a total of about $128. Thousand dollars for services that he was not qualified to render. Uh, this is a very good lesson. Uh, one of the things that we've learned over the years is, when a new provider or a new physician is about to join your practice, uh, it's a very good idea to do that due diligence ahead of time uh, to understand what the capabilities of that uh, provider are, uh, if their certifications are truthful, and if they are uh, qualified to provide the service that are going to be put forward and they are going to be providing on a daily basis. Uh, something to watch for in the future, and with that, I'll throw it back to
1: Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. He was reporting on the latest Medicaid audits. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant with Doctors Management, and coming up about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Shannon DeCondid, David Glazer, Mary Inman, and Angela Phillips. This is Monday, it's March fifth, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: Cardiac procedures yield high rates of reimbursement. They're also a target for auditing, because that's where the money is. Big money. Getting all the reimbursement you deserve is tricky, challenging, and complex. That's why RAC Monitor is conducting a two-part webcast series on steps your facility can take so you won't leave money on the table. Join Jill Knight during Part One of this exclusive Rack Monitor series as she provides compliant solutions to withstand rack audit scrutiny of your cardiac procedures. Register now for this important webcast: Cardiac Procedures Part One. Defend your reimbursement claims for cardiac pacemakers. It's Wednesday, April fourth at 1:30 p.m. Eastern. To attend, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578
1: extension 2. Thanks, Clark Anthony. By the way, this two-part series will feature Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Jill Dyke, by the way, is a former auditor with the OIG. She so really knows some stuff. So be sure to register for both webcasts on this very, very important topic It's coming your way on Wednesday, April 4th. Now let's check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer. He is reporting on risky business. And David, what is risky this morning? Good morning,
4: Chuck. So I have a different take on the recent Kaiser study than Dr. Hirsch, but we'll come to that during the questions if there's time. So in a little bit, Shannon DeConda is going to talk about some new develops in some new developments even, involving Modifier 25. So she suggested that I talk about a common Modifier 25 dilemma, so thanks for this. Let's say that during an evaluation and management service, a physician decides that the patient needs a procedure. Um, Perhaps they're scheduling an appointment for the procedure, um, but expect to see the patient the same day. So the physician's considering three different options. They could bill only for the procedure, which is certainly legal, um, though it may well leave you underpaid. You can provide both the E&M and the procedure on the same day, billing both using modifier 25. That, of course, puts you on the modifier 25 radar. And the third and final option is, knowing that Medicare is skeptical of procedures and evaluations on the same day, you tell the patient that they need to come back on a different day for the procedure. So which option is right? And how would you rank the choices? Now, it isn't really fair to ask this in the abstract. Um, The best option is going to depend on exactly what procedure we're talking about and exactly what the evaluation and management service consists of. But I don't care what the procedure is. One of those choices strikes me as always wrong. I can't envision a scenario where I would recommend telling the patient to come back on a later day to get the procedure. If the procedure and visit are both billable, they're both billable on the same day with modifier 25. If they're bundled, Forcing the patient to return on a later day doesn't change
0: that fact.
4: I would much rather defend a practice for using modifier 25 than I would for bringing the patient back in. First, and most obviously, we should always put the patient first. Making the patient come back is terrible patient care, and quality should be paramount in any medical setting. But that's not all. Think about how you'd view this case if you were a juror. The billing rules are complicated, you're not sure what to believe. Do you believe the physician or do you believe the government? Now, would you trust the physician if the doctor, so I guess let's put it this way, which doctor you do you trust more? The one who performed both procedures, used modifier 25, openly disclosing the issue, or do you trust the doctor who tried to obscure what was going on and and kind of obfuscated the uh, the bundling question by splitting uh, uh, the encounter into two visits? I know I'm going to have a very negative view of that latter physician. I would think that the efforts to obscure the fact implies guilt and the actions prioritize patients are profits over patients. In short, after hearing the facts, I would deeply doubt the integrity of the physician and I'd wind up more likely to trust the government. The bottom line is that you may choose to eat the evaluation and management service. I'm not recommending that choice because I think you should get paid for your work. I prefer the option of billing for your work and fighting for the reimbursement, but whichever of those two you choose, don't inconvenience the patient and bring them back on another day. So, Chuck, I only know one more song with the number 25 prominently featured. I sure hope that... In the year
0: 2525
4: If man is still alive
0: If man is still alive
4: if woman can survive,
0: if woman can survive, they may find.
4: I hope we figured out how to avoid the unnecessarily complicated coding principles like we've got in this case. So I'll turn it back to you, and we'll see if during the questions, Dr. Hirsch and I can debate the Kaiser survey.
1: Very good. Thanks, David, very much. That was Health for attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm at Federacy and Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where they're expecting 8 to 10 inches of snow this morning. Now we switch live to London, and we check in with whistleblower attorney Mary Inman, who is reporting on a very important whistleblower case. Good morning from London.
5: Good morning. On January 29th, a federal judge in Central District of California issued his ruling on Defendant United Health Group's motion to dismiss the government's case in one of the largest False Claims Act cases to date involving the Medicare Managed Care Program. In his ruling, the judge denied UHG's motion to dismiss one of the government's claims and granted UHG's motion as to another, while providing leave for the government to mend its complaint to resuscitate the second of its two claims. The net effect of the judge's ruling, therefore, is that the government's case against UHG is allowed to proceed and the litigation continues. This point bears particular emphasis here since much of the press covering the ruling over the past few weeks has misleadingly suggested that the ruling was somehow fatal and or a serious setback to the government's lawsuit, which is not the case. A quick reminder on what this case is all about. In this case against United Health Group and its data arm, Optum, the United States is alleging that UHG submitted false diagnosis codes to CMS to garner higher reimbursement rates. The alleged fraud was brought to light by whistleblower Benjamin Paling, a former employee in the finance department of UHG's Medicare and Retirement Division. Medicare Part C reimburses insurers based on the demographics and health status of the population of CMS beneficiaries the insurer covers in the form of a capitation rate. Under Medicare Part C, insurers generally receive higher payments for covering sicker beneficiaries regardless of what services they actually provide to those beneficiaries. Under the program's rules, for a diagnosis to be valid, it must have come from a face-to-face encounter with a qualified provider type in the given year of service, and also the diagnosed condition must have been treated or affected treatment. Also, each year, all Part C plans must submit an attestation signed by the plan's CEO or CFO certifying that all data submitted to CMS was truthful, accurate, and complete. According to DOJ, UHG submitted to CMS diagnoses it received from providers. UHG then went back into patient charts and hired medical coders to do blind chart reviews, meaning that coders were asked to write down all diagnoses supported in the chart. UHG then submitted those codes to CMS for reimbursement. The government alleges that UHG generally did not delete provider-generated codes that were not supported by its reviews, instead only adding new codes that its reviewers discovered. For example, according to the complaint, if a provider submitted diagnosis codes 1 and 2 and the chart reviewer found codes 2 and 3, United Health Group would submit codes 1, 2, and 3, even though UHG had knowledge of code 1 being highly suspect, it having failed an audit. UHG did this on a massive scale, the government alleges, with a chart review program generating hundreds of millions of dollars a year for the company. Additionally, UHG executives annually signed certifications, at a station certifying that all data was truthful, accurate, and complete, despite their knowledge of the massive chart review program. Defendants moved to dismiss based on materiality, arguing that potentially false codes, and potentially false attestations would not affect the government's decision to pay UHG based on the data and therefore were not material. Defendants also argued that CMS knew all about their data mining programs and did not cease payments. The court ruled, however, that the diagnoses submitted to CMS were material, but that DOJ inadequately pledged the materiality of the annual attestations noting that DOJ did not allege that CMS would have stopped payment if they knew an attestation was false. Although the dismissal was without prejudice, the government recently notified the court that it would not seek to amend its complaint, instead proceeding on the claims remaining in the government's complaint. Next up in this case, a scheduling conference with the court on March 26th at which a trial date is expected to be entered for when this important matter will proceed to trial. Thanks,
1: Jeff. Thank you, Mary, very much. That was Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon, where she specializes in representing whistleblowers from the United States, Europe, and worldwide. (music) Now it's time for our inpatient rehabilitation report, and for that, we turn to Angela Phillips. Angie, there's some confusion, I guess, over the uh, interrupted stays for uh, inpatient uh, rehabilitation facilities. So, what's the confusion?
6: The IRS interrupted state requirements have always been a bit problematic for IRFs, partly because they don't happen that often. So because it's an infrequent event, we pay less attention to it until it does. Then in late 2017, the OIG reported um, that one of their reviews determined that Medicare had inappropriately paid acute care hospitals for outpatient services provided to Medicare beneficiaries who were inpatients of other facilities. Since that time, I've been getting a lot more questions from IRFs about how to handle the situation because not only do they have questions, but the providers with whom they have arrangements for services are now asking the IRF to pay for those services. So this morning, I'd like to talk about the interrupted stay in the IRF and who can and should bill Medicare for those services that are provided under arrangements. First, I've got an alert to our listeners, though. If you're not an IRF, listen up. This morning, I'm talking only about the IRF payment provisions and not about other post-acute settings. For example, the payment and billing guidelines are different for long-term acute care hospitals, and LTACs have their own set of rules related to interrupted stays and those definitions. Also, other payers, payers other than Medicare, are going to handle the situation differently. So sometimes when I speak, I speak about, all post-acute providers, this is very specific to IRS. Now, a little background. All inpatient hospitals, including IRFs, are required to provide certain hospital services to their inpatients. We need to do this either directly or under arrangements with other providers. When arranged services are provided, they may be provided by the acute care hospital that houses the IRF, by another acute facility, or by an outpatient provider. Because IRFs typically use these other providers, billing for those arranged services gets to be complex. Medicare has developed specific guidelines for an interrupted stay in the IRF and how services should be billed for these patients. First, interrupted stays are defined as those cases in which the Medicare beneficiary is discharged from the inpatient rehabilitation facility and returns to the same inpatient rehabilitation facility within three consecutive calendar days. Those three calendar days begin with the day of the discharge and end on midnight of the third day. Again, we're looking at midnight. A case where a patient leaves on any given day and returns before midnight is not an interrupted stay. When an interruption does occur, the date information is captured on the earthPI document and entered not only on the Earthside, but on the UB, and these numbers tie up with billing. The Earthside Manual has been very clear instructions for capturing this data. So the real question remains, who pays who, who bills when, and who gets paid by Medicare? The instructions for this are a bit vague and are located, as we frequently see, related to all Medicare services in multiple places. There are references in the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, and some very good clarification can be found online at www.medicareuniversity.com, which is the educational site associated with MGS. Now, we would suggest that listeners review that educational product, even if they're governed by a different MAC, because it gives some pretty clear practical information. The bottom line is this. EFMIRF arranges a service for a patient... And the patient returns to the earth by midnight of the same day, it is not an interrupted stay. The earth must pay the provider that provides the services, and the earth should bill the services on the earth account. If, however, the patient is away from the earth past midnight on the day they left, the earth should code the time away as an interrupted stay. The other facility should provide, submit a Medicare claim for the services, and it should be processed by Medicare and paid. The ER should not bill for that service, and it can be clarified by using the interruption day stay, the dates that are on the irf document. So in summary, ERs need to be aware of the requirement for providing hospital services, both within the facility and under arrangement, but you've got to be equally aware of the requirements for billing and paying for those services. And the big caveat is we need to be able to explain these rules and provide references to the regulations to the providers that, that we use for providing range services. It's important that we review the claims mail, any educational documents, and particularly updated documents. And we get a report like this OIG report to really clarify what it says. And finally, since there's always nuances to these things, we're happy to respond to questions that come to us from the field. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Angie, very much. Thanks for that insight. That was Angela Phillips. Angela is one of the nation's foremost authorities on inpatient rehabilitation okay. facilities, and she's got an excellent article on our homepage, IraqMonitor.com. One of the biggest stories so far this year has to do with Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. The giant carrier decided to rescind its policy to reduce payments for EM services reported with modifier 25. For background on this latest development, here is Rack Monitor contributing editor Shannon Dakonda. Good morning, Shannon.
7: Good morning, and thank you, Chuck, and thank you to everybody listening in. Uh, as Chuck mentioned, Anthem had initially actually announced in October of last year that they would be reducing reimbursements for EM services billed in combination with a minor surgical procedure by 50% but favor was found for providers and Anthem rescinded this policy. Well, they didn't actually rescind it, but rather they decided to change the reduction from 50 to 25% and that would kick in March 1st of this year. However, on March 23rd, Anthem announced that they would officially cease and assist with these reductions, but for now. They've indicated that they will further review this matter for consideration as they feel there is an overlap of provider reimbursements when allowing for the E&M with the procedural service on the same day service. So let's actually take a step back for a minute and make sure we're all on the same sh- sheet of music. The coding combination that is in question here includes an office-based procedural service that is classified as a minor procedure, meaning it has a zero to ten day global. That, built in addition with the office-based service reported with an E&M code. However, these services are bundled, so you would have to have a 25 modifier appended in order to obtain reimbursement for both. The argument that exists not just for Anthem but for many carriers is they all feel that they have already allocated appropriate pre-procedural reimbursement. And therefore, when a provider is asking to be reimbursed for both the E&M and the procedure, that there's an overlap of reimbursement therefore Anthem had a solution that they would just reduce reimbursement for the E&M service and then they felt that the providers would be adequately reimbursed well interestingly enough if commercial payers followed CMS guidance which look as very arguably gray at best there would be less considerations of an overlap of service because if you refer to the NCCI policy manual, it would be appropriate for a provider to submit a claim for reimbursement for both an office encounter and a procedure when the E&M encounter is performed completely for a different problem or more extensive work for consideration of the procedure is required to make a medically appropriate decision. Commercial carriers like to say they follow CMS guidance but more times than not it seems like they do when it fits their appropriate claims processing and the modifier 25 is not an exception. Many commercials state they always want a 25 modifier appended to an E&M with a procedure even if there is no bundling edit. Why do we need a 25 modifier if there is no bundling edit that exists? telling the provider they must use an unbundling modifier that oh by the way drives your possibility of increased utilization to flag you for an audit is a de- an exact contradiction of the use of the actual modifier. You see, if there's no edit that exists between the minor procedure and the E&M, then the 25 modifier isn't needed. So today, I challenge you, go look at your edits. Look at your edits that exist between new patients and most minor procedures. You will find that in most cases, no edit exists. Wart removal, no edit. Major joint injection, no edit. The rumen removal. No edit exists with new patients. But yet most commercial payers want you to put a 25 modifier on it anyway. This is why NCCI actually states that the fact the patient is a new patient alone does not exempt them from the rule. That's because there's no edit in the first place. The 25 modifier remains so controversial. In the article that I was lucky enough to publish with Rack Monitor, I tried to explore some of those other reasons. And guys, quite honestly, we don't need to do away with a modifier. We don't need to modify reimbursements. What we actually need is fact-based education that is not based on opinion or interpretation, but on exactly what we're supposed to do. And Chuck, with that, I passionately hand it back over to you.
1: Thanks, Shannon, very much. That was Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder and the president of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists. Name as we know them to be. And if that's not enough, Shannon is a partner of Doctors' Management, and you can read Shannon's reporting on Anthem and the Modifier 25 on our homepage, RackMonitor.com. Thanks very much for listening. And I want to thank our special guest today, Shannon DeConda, whom you just heard, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman calling in live from London, and Angela Phillips. We look forward to your returning next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday with my colleague Nancy Beckley, who's going to be back with us next Monday. She's on assignment this week. A special shout out to Debbie and her crew who listen to us every Monday and Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday
0: is a presentation of Rack Monitor.